came to America when he was six months old. He started as a stock boy at the grocery store. Eventually, he owned it. He turned it into the biggest grocery store chain in New York City. He now owns a real estate company worth over $2 billion. He ran for mayor of New York City. He almost won. You can't make this story up. This is the Cats Roundtable with John Katsimatidis. Everywhere around the world, they come into America. Good morning, New York. This is the Cats Roundtable. John Katsimatidis here Sunday morning. We have a great show for you today. Suzanne Miller talking about real estate. Michael Coyas talking about electric vehicles. Jim McGreevy, what's going on in New Jersey? And we'll find out why. Nicole Magritakis, congestion pricing. Oh, my God. Governor David Patterson. Bill Bratton about the New York Police Department and what's going on with additional reporting. And let's start with Michael Stoller with the Stoller Report. Hello, this is Michael Stoller for the Solar Real Estate Report on the Cats Roundtable. Today I have somebody who is a Brooklyn-born individual who operates in Brooklyn and is, at one time, I used to call him the king of Montague Street, but is anywhere in Brooklyn that everybody knows, the managing partner and founder of SVNCPEX Real Estate, my friend Tim King. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me, Michael. Good to see you. So you were born in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, correct? At Bay Ridge Hospital. Where was Bay Ridge Hospital? I didn't even know about that. It's currently a nursing home on Ovington Avenue between 4th and 5th Avenues. So, you know, one of the things that you've done over your long career is that you were an innovator by bringing a Manhattan firm to Brooklyn. Let's talk about that. Well, I can't take credit for that. That's Bob Nackle and Paul Massey, but they were kind enough to ask me to open up their Brooklyn office in 2002, and I like to think that those are some of the best years of my life. We had a great time. Now, as we were saying on the phone the other day, real estate is local. Downtown and Bay Ridge is leased. What's going on today in different sections of Brooklyn? Because people know about downtown. What's really happening downtown and all over Brooklyn? So all over Brooklyn is a pretty general question, and I like to think that Brooklyn, or as I like to call it, Kings County, is for the most part flourishing in every area. And you make a good point. I think some of the the pockets that people don't think of uh, outside of the the trophy names are in many ways uh, flying under the radar but but flourishing in their own right. Now, with regard to that, you were in, as I said, you were in downtown uh, Brooklyn. Now you're in Bay Ridge. I mean, your headquarters, but it doesn't mean that's where you're doing business. You're doing business all through the city. So... What's really happening in the Bay Ridge area, okay? A number of years ago when we were young, you didn't have urgent care centers. You didn't have ambulatory care centers. What's happening with the healthcare market in, in Brooklyn? So the healthcare market is kind of the flavor of the day. They're almost like the, the cell phone stores, the video stores, or the banks of yesteryears. Healthcare is a pretty booming industry, and I think that you're seeing a proliferation that's already happened of urgent care. And I think you're seeing a lot of the major hospitals expanding into smaller facilities outside of Manhattan to better serve their uh, patient base. Right. Uh, especially, you know, NYU Langone, New York Presbyterian, you know, all of these hospitals and, and the Northwell system are growing by leaps and bounds. You've recently got involved with the leased space to NYU Langone. Let's talk about that for a second. Thank you. That is correct. 
It's an interesting uh, property on 88th Street in Bay Ridge where one of the more enlightened builders that I've ever met created a very, very unique property for any place outside of what you may think of as Manhattan or downtown. It's it's probably the nicest space in, in South Brooklyn. It's, it's not probably. It is the nicest. Uh, he did some very innovative work in the building with, with terraces, landscaped roof, intelligent elevators, and a lobby that probably should be on the cover of Architectural Digest. And before completion, and he worked through COVID to finish the building, we leased about 40% of the building, or 20,000 square feet, to NYU Langone. Now, a couple of years ago, I think you were involved with the uh, near the Bush Terminal area with, with regard to a Bed Bath & Beyond. Let's talk about that. It was an interesting project than where it is today. Well, sadly, they're no longer there today. Right. But that was a great project. That was um, Marvin Schein and his partner, Sal, who had taken over a property that had been vacant for quite some time. In fact, when I first visited, there were pigeons flying through the building. And I was able to help them by bringing Bed Bath & Beyond and, and Saxoff Fifth to the building, uh, which together was almost about 150,000 square feet of retail space and was a real shot in the arm for, for that part of Brooklyn, which in Sunset Park is is still one of those kind of under the radar, but very, very strong, both on the resident and retail side. Now, who's the retail in the space now? It's being marketed. It's currently vacant. Okay. Uh, with regard to other space, you know, people talk about different sections of Brooklyn. Some of them are really not in the press a, a lot, like Coney Island. What's your thoughts about Coney Island? So Coney Island is, again, one of those areas where there's been tremendous residential development over the last decade or so. The city spent a gazillion dollars renovating the subway station. It has has the Atlantic Ocean, one of the most beautiful beaches and boardwalks in the world. So for someone who's looking for an opportunity that maybe doesn't have a trophy name attached to it, Coney Island is one of the places where I would go and kick the tires. Okay. With regard to downtown Brooklyn, you know, a number of years ago, office buildings were built at Metrotech and other locations up there. Are those buildings or others being converted to residential today? I don't think I've heard of any building that is being actively converted to resi. Now, with regard to new office buildings, I believe in downtown Brooklyn, there are a couple of new office buildings that sure. opened over the last couple, maybe the last year or so. Well, one of them would be One Willoughby Square, which was a property that I had sold to uh, th- the land to JEMB Realty, and they built an extraordinary property there opposite the Albee Square Mall, and I do believe that they're having great success with, with leasing, and part of it is because, again, they've created a better mousetrap. Now, with regard to that, what's your thoughts about all of the construction on Flappish Avenue? I think over time it'll all be occupied, it'll all be full, and I think people are going to be happy. You know, you mentioned Flatbush Avenue. It's kind of interesting. Some 30-odd years ago, I sold a property by Brooklyn College, by the, the Junction neighborhood. The same family still owns the property. Back then, I rented about 7,000 square feet to a SUNY Downstate. they would occupied it ever since. They're now leaving. I'm looking to lease the space for the second time. So, you know, it's a cycle. Everything moves around over the cycle. I'd like to thank my friend Tim King for being here, and I'll see you next week. Thank you, Michael. The Cats Roundtable. With us today is Suzanne Miller. She is the founder of Empire State Properties, a boutique real estate firm in New York. And she's uh, with us to uh, give us an update of what the heck is going on in real estate in New York. Suzanne Miller, you tell us what's going on. 
Hey, John, thanks for having me. It's a very interesting time because I guess we're going to survive till 25. Uh, right now on the residential side, there's just not a lot going on. Transactions are down like 30%. I think people are afraid we have an election year going on. So sellers are afraid to list and buyers are afraid to buy. So we're just sitting with like 30% less deals this year than last at this time. And what we're not seeing, what people are not talking about is that on the sales side, there's a lot of private deals going on, like sellers are not discussing the closing costs, they're giving back money after closing, they're charging extra furniture. So the market's down about 10%, and that is just, but we're not really seeing what's truly going on on the sales side. So the market, you're saying that the market is 30% softer uh, than you felt in the past, in the last year? It's, it's 30% softer regarding closed deals, but the sales price down about 10%, and that does not include the private deals happening between the landlords and the buyers and the sellers. It's private deals, so that it doesn't bring down the value of the property. Do you know what I mean? Now, we, 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 on the rest of the real estate market, besides apartments, are sales up or down? Because uh, it's kind of a, I mean, if somebody's going to pay 7 or 8% of interest rates to the bank, it would have to be a much better deal, wouldn't it? better do what you're seeing that is that people are just not listening. They're afraid to list their property. Did you see, I'm not sure, I'm sure all of your listeners saw the six minutes this day about the thing they can see on the office are down 50%. Um, I'm sure you all saw that on the BBC buildings. But they didn't talk about is, and this is an interesting thing, is that the high-end buildings like 245 Park Avenue, they're getting like $150 a foot. So the high-end buildings are doing so well but most of the the 50% that they're talking about are the the B and C buildings, which we're going to hope we're going to change and make and convert them. There's so many sitting around. Anything else you want to tell all the uh, New Yorkers about uh, New York real estate? I think it's interesting that in the, this whole you know suits thing and COVID, it's interesting that the people that were living around Park Avenue and the downtown area have a lot of them have moved to Westchester. So that's why the Park Avenue South location, those buildings are not doing well because so many of those yuppies left, and they all went to Westchester. So the buildings around and Central are doing so well. That is why Midtown around the 40s is like on fire. They were getting like $150 a foot. And I think that's interesting to see the gentrification of people moving in and out of the city. That's what I'm following. In other words, because of Grand Central Terminal being there and people can go to Long Island... Or wherever the exactly. else they Westchester. That value went great. It went sky high right now. So it, it became transportation-oriented increases. Exactly. And that's, I, I, I find that very interesting, and I've been watching that. Like Citadel See, that's, a, a, that's, a, a, that's a new word that real estate people can use, transportation-oriented increases. We're going to quote John Castamatidis, transportation-oriented real estate, T-A-R. T-A-R. Thank you. Suzanne Miller, we'll catch up again real soon. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. Bye-bye. This is the Cash Roundtable. We'll be right back. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. 
Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome back to the Catch Roundtable. With us today is Mike Collius, and he's with the Wall Street Journal Automotive Division. Uh, Mike, good to talk to you again, and uh, we we're calling you for an update. What the heck is going on with these electric vehicles? I understand there's problems all over the place, especially in Chicago with the uh, when it gets extremely cold. Yeah, well, thanks, John. Uh, yeah, it's been kind of a rough couple weeks stretch for electric vehicles. I mean, that was probably the highest profile problem was these chargers in chicago this is probably about 10 days ago it got into the i mean this is cold i know you guys get cold weather up uh in new york but midwest is a little different you can get this this below zero and that's what happened and chargers don't like that the the batteries don't like that and um we saw really long lines the problem is the chargers go more slowly uh, to try to fill up the car and the, and then people, the, the battery drains quicker. And so people need to stop to charge more. And it created long lines at the Tesla charging stations in Chicago. Understood. And uh, what happened with all these cars? The big question I would have, and I don't know if you know the answer, when the battery dies, does it come back to to the living afterwards when it warms up? Or, or does it, you need a new battery? You just need to get someone to come out and charge it like you would if you ran out of gas on the side of the road, um, which is more difficult to do with an electric car. I mean, I think the problem we're seeing now is because there's more of these on the road, you know, and here we haven't had a cold snap like this, I think, in a couple of years. And so it hasn't, you know, we haven't seen this in a while where there's a bunch of people needing to charge at once. There's more cars now than there were before. Uh, and a lot of people buy these cars without really understanding. There's something that you can do with a Tesla where you can kind of warm up the battery so it takes a charge more quickly. It's like ready to go when it gets to the charging station. A lot of people don't realize that. And so it slows down the process. Then you get into a line. It's just like one of you know, the many sort of growing pains and inconveniences you're going to have with an electric car to, to go along with the good stuff like not having to stop for gas. And now, the other thing uh, that uh, uh, we talked about the other day when we talked is uh, I understand in South Carolina, uh, one of the uh, towns bought $5 million worth uh, of uh, electric buses, and all of a sudden, kaput. What is, have you heard anything much about it? <laughs> Well, I know that they're that they it's costing them a lot more than they expected to put these buses into service, and I you know I think there's a, there's some reasons why you, some cities want to start to convert some of their fleets to electric. I mean, first of all, there's federal money flowing for this, so they can use some of the money to buy buses, um, and over time it could mean that you are going to spend less operating your fleet because you don't have to. Uh, get gasoline and electric vehicles should require less maintenance. The problem is there's big upfront costs. Even if you are getting federal subsidies, you got to buy the buses and a bunch of chargers. 
And then there's a bunch of unknowns. You know, the city's got to figure out, okay, well, how long is it going to take to charge these? And, uh, you know, what's the optimal time so I'm getting the best rate to charge them? And, like, what if what if we need parts? You know, do we have the workers to, to, to service the electric buses? So, I mean, just like the everyday person who goes to buy an EV has got a lot of learning to do, I think so, so do the cities who are trying to introduce electrics into their bus fleets. Now, uh, you know, I, I look at the stock market ticker, uh, the old-fashioned way that we talk a ticker, uh, and uh, uh, Elon Musk's stock was like, uh, Tesla's stock was almost like, almost 300 a couple months ago. And I looked at it this morning and was down to uh, the very low 200s, like 210 or 26, 206. Uh, And is that basically because uh, there's a war going on on electric vehicles? Or what do you think it is? I mean, that's a big part of it, John, is the the price war that really Elon Musk has has started. Uh, And a lot of people... And this has been going on about a year now, and and for a while people were trying to figure out, okay, is this, you know, what does this mean? Does this mean that there, there's a drop off in demand? And I think that 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 question's been answered. I think he is having a harder time finding buyers. That's the only reason, generally, that you cut prices. And so I think that Tesla, even though it's still, you know, worth ten times the amount that GM or Ford is, you know, investors still think that. There's a there's a long way to go with electrics and Tesla's best positioned. Uh, they're not immune to some of these problems that we've seen as people get further into the electric vehicle story and they realize that, you know, you, there's a lot of inconveniences that you've got to put up with. And so, you know, we may have hit um, a, a bit of resistance in terms of the number of people who are willing to take the chance and go out and buy an electric. And I think that's showing up in the stock price, which is down. I think about 15% this year and about it's been cut in half since it's, it's uh record high. I think back in like late 2021, early 2022. I understood. Any update on uh, if uh, uh, Hertz was trying to get rid of 20,000 Teslas. I mean, I can't even scratch my head and say who they're going to sell it to. And, and uh, uh, probably most of them or all of them need new batteries is there any update on that yet? Yeah, the batteries I'm not so sure about. The batteries are probably fine because they're relatively new cars. But, they, I mean, Tesla or Hertz was ditching a lot of these cars. I'm sure a lot of them are Teslas um, because they were more costly to operate than they expected. And there wasn't as big a demand from rental customers as expected. And so they're going to have a tough job with this because resale values of EVs have really fallen off. Um, Tesla's price war has has contributed to that. And so, you know, Hertz is going to sell these down over the next year or so, um, but they're going to take some pretty big losses on their initial purchase of these things because, you know, the values have really come off. And so they feel like they're going to replace some of these with gas engine cars, and that's going to be a better setup for them. I mean, they're still going to have some EVs to rent, but not as many as they expected. Mike uh, Collius, Wall Street Journal, anything else you want to tell uh, the American people this Sunday morning? I think we've covered it, John, on, on EVs. You know, it's not it's not been an easy start of the year uh, if you're trying to sell EVs. There's been some bad publicity around them. There's still a lot of believers out there. I think this is going to tell this year is going to tell us a lot as to where this technology is headed. Well, thank you so much, and we'll catch up with you again real soon. Appreciate it, John. Thanks. With us today is Governor McGreevy. 
and he is running for become the mayor of Jersey City. And uh, Governor McGreevy, do I have to call you mayor after this? <laughs> John, that, that, that would be the nicest thing that ever, anybody ever called me. J- Jim is just perfect, but thank you. <laughs> Jim, give us give us a uh, update. What's going on with the mayor's race in New Jersey and your race, and what's going on with all the races? There's so much turmoil going on in New Jersey, uh, and just give us an update overall. Sure, I, I think John for Jersey City. You know, God willing, what I'm interested in doing is providing a sort of a traditional nuts and bolts, hands-on mayoralty, and that is to be accountable to people to be responsive, and to make sure that, you know, when people have needs, whether it's clean streets or whether it's, you know, quality schools and their kids are getting a good education or controlled developments and even, you know, working class affordable development, I want to be the guy who's not particularly, you know, sexy or fancy, but hands-on and basic and delivers a product. The guy who makes sure that the streets are well striped and paved, that the traffic lights, that speeding is enforced, um, that that municipal government works. And, you know, the great thing, you know, John, for me is Jersey City where, you know, my grandparents and my parents, it's I remember when I, you know, we first started reentry. It's like all these other basic services that we were providing for these people but it's like making sure that they work in tandem, whether it's addiction treatment, whether it's mental health, whether it's housing, or whether it's job training. So it's not necessarily fancy, but it's important stuff and rolling up your sleeves, digging into it and making sure that it works. And the same way that God willing reentry works, um, you know, I, I want to do that. And, and then also sort of bring to bear you know, the state of New Jersey, bring to bear the federal government. You know, you have the Infrastructure Investment Act that was passed on a bipartisan basis in Congress. Well, a lot of that money in terms of uh, the Hudson Tunnel, a lot of that infrastructure is coming through Jersey City. So you want to make sure that Jersey City's, you know, that their interests are protected, but that hopefully you put young men and women to work you give them a career, particularly on the tunnel, which is going to be a 15-year a project. So you want to leverage, if you will, those federal and state relationships so that you build good, solid bones in the city. Statewide, I think, John, you know, um, you know, people are looking, obviously, at the congressional races. They're looking at the national race. Um, and people, uh, you know, in 2025, you've also got the gubernatorial race. Uh, Governor Murphy is he served his two terms. So um, so I think you've got a lot of dynamism. And then you also have in in terms of this year, 2024, in addition to the presidential race, you'll have the U.S. Senate race in addition to the congressional races. So uh, are all those people running against uh, uh, Robert Menendez? When is that primary? That prim- great question. That primary is going to be this year, this June of 2024. And it looks like, you know, um, the good congressman, Rob, will be running against um, the mayor of Hoboken, Ravi Bala. 
Um, and, you know, the congressman has his, his own track record. Um, and so that race will occur at 24, as well will the U.S. Senate race occur on a statewide basis. And now I understand the Governor Murphy's wife is running against uh, Menendez in the primary, as well as uh, this other gentleman? Uh, well, it's it? it just so that on, you know, that uh, the First Lady Tammy Murphy will be running for the U.S. Senate. Um, as far as I know, I think as of the present day, John, um, Senator Menendez, um, the father, um, has not announced his intention to seek election again. Um, so, you know, as of this point, I mean, I think he, he has to he would probably have to announce or move forward to announcing his intentions in the in the first and second quarter of this year. But as of today. Um, you know, on the cusp of February, Senator Menendez has not stated that he's going to run again. So um, if he doesn't run, it'll be a race between uh, First Lady Tammy Murphy, who has her own track record, and Congressman Kim from, from South Jersey. And that's if uh, Senator Menendez does not get into the primary. And you do not have a primary, is that correct? Well, no, no. The Jersey City election is is nonpartisan, and so it's it's uh, you know Democrats, Independents, Republicans. It's a nonpartisan election, and you have to break fifty percent. And if you don't break fifty percent, uh, then you, then you go into a runoff. And so, like, I'm out there going to you know every chicken dinner, every church dinner, every VFW, every flag raising. Um, all throughout the community, you know, showing people being accessible, um, you know, as my father would say, listening. That's why God gave us two ears and one mouth, so we listen twice as hard as we speak. Um, but, you know, just just being around and just being in, in different neighborhoods and, um, and just being part of the, of the community. And I think it's important, John. People have got to see you. They've got to be able to to see you, to touch you, to understand that you're, you know, a regular guy and that you're going to do a good job and you're going to work hard. I mean, like like you do every day. It's about hard work. And it's about, you know, rolling up your sleeves and getting it done and being accountable. My, my dad, who was, as you know, was a Marine Corps DI, used to say, plan your work. You know, yeah, plan your work and work your plan so that, Hopefully, you know, when I can talk to people about some of the things we're going to do in the city, then you have the opportunity to make it a reality. Governor McGreevy, thank you so much. As as everybody knows, in both states and all states, and I'm supporting you, you've been a good friend for many years. God bless you. God bless him. Thank you, John. And thank you for everything you do for the community and uh, for, for so many. I can go on and on embarrassing you. But in any event, thanks, my friend. Thank you so much. All right. God bless. God bless. Be well. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. <laughs> what is today's Governor David Patterson? And Governor uh, Patterson, uh, tell us what's on your mind this week. Well, you know, John, I've been coming on your Sunday show. I- my best count is for about nine years off and on. And during that time, I think you would agree that I don't take any 
every opportunity, as some do, to criticize former President Donald Trump. I actually thought when he was in office that his foreign policy was rather superb. And I thought also that his economic policies were, you know, really helped the country. And at the point that he left office, oil was at about uh, $40 a, a gallon. Not a gallon, but uh, a barrel. A barrel. Yeah, it was fifty, fifty-five dollars a barrel. It was around that. Yeah, but I just felt that he eviscerated the field in the Iowa caucuses. He handily won his bid to be the nominee in New Hampshire, and after all that success, what does he do? He gets up and trashes Nikki Haley because she said she wasn't going to get out of the race. Now let's just be fair here. He never conceded that he lost the 2020 election, not that night or not for three and a half years. So I think that she has the right. But listen, in the projected polls right now for South Carolina, her home state where she was governor is 61 percent for President Trump and 27 for Haley. So she is not any kind of a factor It'll come to her, and at a certain point, uh, she will get out of the race, and she will support him. But I just don't see any reason for that kind of acrimony. And, and some of the criticisms and making up names about her I thought was actually vulgar. So with that in mind, I just wanted to put that on the record. And now let's get to the fact that there is an override attempt by the New York City Council on the piece of legislation that requires that police document almost every activity that they engage in, including saying good afternoon to to, to a tourist the public. Yeah. Or tourists. And Mayor Adams is looking for two city council members who voted for the bill to come back and vote with him to prevent the override of his veto. And I think that that's going to be very difficult because the speaker of the city council, Adrian Adams, has offered that in the survey that was taken, that 97 or 95 percent of the little one stops were people of color, African-Americans and Hispanics. Now, that is an alarming percentage. The crime statistics have shown that African-Americans, men and women, were the you know the, the numbers for crime committing crime are are higher in in those areas, but they never hit the numbers of the percentage of the stops at, at that level. So what I'm thinking is that if the city council could be persuaded at this point that people who would be stopped, since it does appear that very few of them are winding up getting arrested, but they are being stopped that perhaps there's a communication that could be handed to them right after the stop. What, what are you doing here? You know, why are you doing what you're doing? That kind of thing. And by the way, if you have any problem with the way I've conducted this stop, uh, you, you, these are your options, like a card you could give them. Because otherwise, I think we're going to have a real problem if the police spend most of their time, as Mayor Adams is talking about, just uh, becoming administrators of paper rather than law enforcement officials protecting the public.
I, I agree with you 110% that the, the police officers would be busy doing paperwork while the criminals uh, get released and uh, out committing new crimes. I mean, it's just uh, silly to, to think about what goes on in our country. Uh, the, the other day, the mayor of uh, Chicago got up and said, all you people living in mansions and, and wherever, we, you should take migrants in. And uh, I was on, uh, on television and I said, well, I guess you better check with Mayor Adams. The last time we did that in New York, the migrant killed the occupants. That has happened. And also, if you document the amount of time it's going to take to write up these reports, it effectively reduces the number of police officers that are actually on the street. Because if a certain percentage of them are stopping people and then they have to write it up, what may happen is they may be more careful who, who they stop and how often they do it. And that actually would be good. But to have a mandate to that effect is really micromanaging the police department at the street level, which I think is done, but it should be done by uniformed officers and people who have law enforcement experience and not statistics. Agree 110%. And Mayor Adams has said he has given the budget back to the police officers in the fire department and is holding back on the libraries, which is only like $20 million. I don't understand, you know, uh, why he's holding back on the libraries. Anything else on your mind? Well, that's kind of interesting because what happened really was it happened with the state budget and the city budget. When the governor and mayor came to the point of view of what they'd have to cut and what they could keep, and Mayor Adams was talking about the cuts all the way back in October, the economy nationally and even in New York has improved for the past couple of months. I see it as temporary, but if you're trying to pass a budget, you could project that forward and get a lot of people to support the fact that you were able to restore uh, the number of officers to the police force and also money to libraries and after-school programs and a lot of the things that were scheduled to be cut. But I think what happened when people and I have negotiated budgets, is you negotiate with this positive feeling that you've underestimated the revenues. And as I had to tell colleagues in Albany, rarely do we ever underestimate the revenues. What happens is that people overestimate the revenues and then wind up with deficits. And that's how we get into the financial problems that we well, had. The other problem coming, the other problem coming that not everybody might not have heard of is the MTA has announced the last couple of days that they're going to, because ridership is down by 20%, they're going to raise the, uh, the amount of the ride. Yeah, and that's going to really hurt a lot of people. It's going to add to traffic. They, they, want, they, want to stay, they want to stay even with the, uh, with the congestion pricing or be con congestion subway rides. Yeah. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> no, I understand. <laughs> well, that's a, that's the state of affairs. Thank you. This week. Thank uh, you, Governor I, Patterson. I and I enjoy talking to you every Sunday. And uh, God bless you. And uh, we'll catch up again soon. Take care. The Cats Roundtable. What is today's Congresswoman Nicole Mayutakis? Nicole, uh, there's so many problems in our city, our state, our country. Where do you want to start? Well, look, John, I think uh, what you're seeing in New York City is a lot of people pushing for, you know, common sense policies. And people are rightfully angry 
because they're seeing that they're getting hit at every turn. The migrant shelter has become a disaster. I propose solutions to this. We've sued. The mayor simply can look to now start phasing out these shelters if he wanted to. And that's what we have to continue to push for because it's become so unsustainable where we're seeing services cut from citizens. And we can stem this flow today at the border if we were to pass our Border Security Act that passed the House and the Senate. And I'm hoping that we'll see a bipartisan resolution and uh, with the Senate so we can just resolve this issue. And really how we resolve it, quite frankly, is just undoing the executive orders that President Biden put in place that allowed for this o- open border process. Um, I understand so that the you. Democrats are pushing that they should have a minimum amount of people they can bring in a day undocumented. Is it, I no, hope it's no, better than that. Look, John, the, the, what they're pushing for hurts the people who came to this country and have been waiting. Uh, they did everything right. In fact, I met one of those individuals this week. I met a constituent of mine who's here legally. She's got work authorization. She's been here since 2017. And she has been waiting for her asylum case to be heard. And it's a clean-cut case. She's a political persecuted individual from Belarus. And and she's been waiting since 2017. And what's happening right now is people like that who've come legally and have been waiting patiently are being pushed to the back of the line in the immigration system, which has become so inundated. The president's policy as of right now is a last in first in approach. So that means the people that are coming over the border, right, paying thousands of dollars, by the way, to the cartels to be smuggled over the border, they're being heard first in immigration court, which means all those people who have come the right way are being pushed further down the line. It's not right, John. We have to incentivize people to come the legal way. And how do you do that if you're giving priority to the people who came the wrong way? I I agree 100 percent. Look, uh uh, me and Bill Fugazi used to run the uh, Ellis Island uh, thing, uh, and we believe in immigration, but we have to have checks and balances and know who's coming and going, and that's one of the most important things to me. What that's else right, bothers John. you? Yes. What well, else bothers you in New York? <laughs> well, uh, look, what's happening right now is with congestion pricing. As you know, there's now there's a, a front from both New Jersey, Staten Island, and Lower Manhattan, we're all suing to stop congestion pricing. I'm glad to join a borough president, Vito Fasella, in this effort on Staten Island. And we're trying to see what we can do to stop this because they violated federal law, John. And that's the important thing for people to recognize. We have a National Environmental Review Act. It was not filed properly. They were supposed to go through a environmental impact study. What we're seeing from the uh, the cockamamie study that they did is that the pollution is being shoved to the outer boroughs. So we need a more comprehensive and thorough analysis, as is required by federal law. And that's what uh, we're all suing on. And we're hoping that we can stop this cash grab, which, as you've rightfully said, will be the death knell for New York City at a time when we're trying to get people to come and visit, spend money, go see our Broadway shows, and stimulate our economy. Uh, this is going to make it more problematic for people to come into the city. Uh, Nicole, it's getting worse. I understand the MTA says they have a shortfall of 20% riders and they want to raise the subway rates. Look, the, the, the reality is, is that the MTA mismanages money. No matter how much money they receive, they receive billions of dollars from the federal government. Uh, they seem to never have enough. And, and if they needed more, then maybe that's where the mayor should be putting money as opposed to spending billions of dollars on these 
migraine encampments that have brought so many issues to our city. I think that, look, the, the MTA needs to be reined in. That is the governor's responsibility. I'm hoping that we can get the MTA chair to Washington for a hearing to really try to hold them accountable for every penny that the federal government has given them, which clearly didn't go toward what they were supposed to go to. And that's why they're in this situation. But they want people to ride the subway, make it safe. That's how you get more people to ride the subway and enforce the laws. You have people jumping turnstiles. They're giving out free Metro cards, by the way, right? They say yep. they want people to pay, and they turn around and give free Metro cards away. And that's why they're having the problems that they are financially. Nicole Mayotakis, thank you so much. And uh, keep fighting for uh, all of our citizens in New York. Let's hope we can save New York. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. This is the Cats Roundtable. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Cats Roundtable. With us today is former Commissioner Bill Bratton, and uh, he uh, is very concerned about what's going on in New York City right now uh, about the new laws governing police officers. Commissioner Bratton, tell us about it. Well, John, the law we're referring to, uh, the proposed law that's been passed by the city council, been vetoed by the mayor, now the city council is going to attempt override the veto, is has a number of uh, names, but... It's known largely as the stop law. Uh, it attempts to uh, put a burden on New York City police officers that anybody that they, in the course of their duties, stop and talk to during the course of an investigation, that they have to make out a report about that stop, including the name, the sex, uh, the gender, the race of the individual that they're talking with. Uh, this is an incredible burden on a department that has millions of interactions every year. And uh, you can imagine New Yorkers who are approached by a police officer, they're looking for a lost child, they're, they're looking to investigate a crime. And uh, before they can do anything, they say to that individual, uh, can you tell me what your race is? Can you tell me, are you male, female, are you binary, are you transsexual? I uh, can imagine the average New Yorker uh, uh, response to those questions. Uh, and it is required of the officers that they document that if the individual doesn't get that information, that they effectively guess. Guess that the person is black or Latino. Guess that the person is male or female or maybe binary. Uh, it is an unnecessary law, very typical of a lot of what our city council does in New York. Mayor Adams and Police Commissioner Caban have been forcefully pushing back on it. But right now, it looks like the majority of the city council, the minority majority, and the majority of the uh, uh, city council are minorities, majority of the NYPD are minorities in a majority minority, excuse me, a minority majority city. The intent of this law is to provide more transparency to make sure that the NYPD is not engaged in racially biased policing. Racially biased policing by a police force that is majority-minority in a majority-minority city, where the majority of criminals are minority and the majority of victims are minority. So what is the purpose of this law other than on the part of the uh, city council to indicate, once again, the intense dislike and lack of trust of the NYPD? So I have gone on so long with this. I have smoke coming out my ears thinking about the, the foolishness and uselessness of this bill. I mean, it sounds crazy. I mean, they'll be f doing paperwork when there's other crimes being committed. 
Exactly. And also, you know, we've been encouraging, I know going back to my time, Ray Kelly's time, we've been supporting community policing, neighborhood policing, where you want your cops to talk to the community, to engage with the community. The average cop is going to step back from that uh, reaching out to the community because he knows every time he talks to somebody, he has to make out a form. And if it, uh, through no fault of his own, he incorrectly identifies that person as uh, uh, black when he's not black or uh, male when they're not male uh, or female and they're not female, that they're subject to a complaint being made against them for uh, basically putting down erroneous information. It is, um, it, well, it's, it's, it's what we've come to expect of the city council, unfortunately, and the public advocate, uh, Mr. Williams. I understand that Mayor Adams is looking for two more votes to get away, you know, to, to have the advantage and not get overturned. Uh, uh, what do you think the chances are? Uh, with this council, I don't know that uh, the, the mayor has some degree of power and influence. But a lot of what's going on here is uh, I think it indicates that many of these people are looking at the idea of if they can weaken Mayor Adams, that in the next uh, mayoral election, maybe they might get a shot at it. Certainly Mr. Williams is uh, uh, looking in that direction. Possibly the president of the city council, Ms. Adams. Uh, the idea of if they can kneecap the mayor, well, who knows? Maybe they could be considered for mayor going forward in this city that tends to vote, unfortunately, very progressive liberal. So I think some of what's going on here is an effort to undercut the mayor. I think a city council president has never been able to undercut a mayor in the past, or who knows the future. Uh, also, I understand, I hear rumors that Andrew Cuomo wants to run for mayor. Uh, but listen, I guess whatever I, will I, be, I, will I, be. I, I don't think that's likely to happen, that uh, in terms of the former governor, uh, for example, is going to have to answer for his parole board, a parole board that has, within uh, the last several years, released 34 cop murderers from prison. So uh, there's a lot of vulnerabilities in that candidacy in the sense of uh, the progressiveness of uh, his administration. I personally like the, uh, the, the former governor, but some of the policies that uh, were enacted during his time uh, with the very progressive, liberal, woke legislature in Albany, I don't think uh, they're going to uh, look too good in the light of day. Commissioner, you've been in law enforcement all your life. There was an article today uh, in the New York Post that uh, the FBI is being influenced uh, by its civilians uh, to hire woke culture uh, FBI agents. Wasn't that incredible? If there's any validity to that, uh, and I know every agency is attempting uh, my own agencies, we're constantly trying to hire more minority candidates, more female candidates, uh, more gay candidates. But you want qualified candidates. You don't want uh, to just have a numbers game. And that article uh, uh, basically inferred that the FBI, in an effort to meet the numbers that are expected, is basically reducing the quality of their agents. That's the last thing you want to do since that agency is under such incredible attack from all sides over the last couple of years. So I hope that's not the case, but I can understand the pressure that the, uh, the FBI direction is probably under. Well, I agree with you. And uh, like I've said in the past, if, if the FBI director is, uh, is made to do something unreasonable by the civilians, he should stand up and tell that to the people and resign if necessary. I mean, uh, it's just it's crazy what's going on in our country uh, Commissioner. Yeah, because you have, when you're the head of an organization like the FBI, or the police department for that matter, you have an obligation to stand up for the organization and do what's right for it and for the public. 
And uh, this whole uh, world that we're engaged in of recent years of uh, attempting to uh, right the wrongs of the past, if you will, and advance the interest of uh, minorities, uh, well intended, but uh, you have to do it in a way that you don't diminish uh, uh, respect for those minorities by putting into place people who just don't have what it takes to do the job. That doesn't serve them any uh, good. And I've seen that time and again where that has happened, where we've had a, an affirmative action appointment of somebody that is totally unqualified. No, fair is fair. Uh, put good people in, no matter what their color or race or background. But uh, don't just try to do the numbers game. Thank you so much, Commissioner. Thank you for everything you've done and continue to do for and speak out for our uh, citizens. And God bless you. Thank you. All the best. Thank you, John. Bye-bye. The Cats Roundtable. If you ever miss a segment or want to hear it again, go to WABCRadio.com, go to podcasts, go to minicasts, and play back your favorite segment. Thank you for being with us for the Cats Roundtable Local Edition, the number one show on Sunday mornings in New York. Keep listening to us for the Cats Roundtable National Edition between 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock. So we'll be back to you in a few minutes after the news.